And I remember showing up to the World Championships with like 23 kilos of brand new Australia kit over my right shoulder and a bag over my left shoulder that the coaches were, were looking at and was like, why has Steve brought two bags? And I had 23 kilos of textbooks. So it was three weeks before my HSC exams that I was competing in my first World Championships. back to the Entrepreneurial Mindset. My name is Edward and I will be your host for today. We're moving today from our two-host structure due to COVID restrictions as we can only have two people on the podcast maximum. However, we don't want to see this as a limitation and we've decided to have a unique host um, best fitting each guest. So Steve, I've um, done some research on you and so I felt like we would be a best fit and with the coming best we've decided that this sort of dynamic mix-up will be sort of... um, uh, exciting and we hope you guys enjoy that as much as we do um, so we do have some ama- amazing guests lined up for season two and our first guest Steve Solomon is certainly living up to these expectations he's an Olympic runner who has represented Australia on the international stage and is a five-time defending national champion an ambassador for UNICEF Australia motivational speaker and enterprise partner manager at Uber so basically he's done it all Welcome onto the podcast, Steve. Thanks very much for having me. So we've given this small introduction, but I don't think it does any justice onto the fruitfulness of your life's journey. Can you give us a bit more detail about how you began your journey into the Olympics? Was it something that you knew all the way back since you know you were like four or five years old? You were like, I want to become an Olympian, or was it something like along the way where you were like, Oh, I'm not too bad at this. Like maybe it's something I might pursue. Definitely. Well, I'll start off by saying. I competed in my first Olympics in 2012, which was in London, and I didn't watch the previous Olympics, which was in Beijing in 2008. Whoa. So my rise to, to the Olympics was was quite out of left field. Right. I grew up very active. I love sport. Cricket, rugby, soccer, tennis, swimming, anything I could do that was active it was, was for me. And, you know, I was really just a, a happy, sporty kid. You know, I was competitive. I enjoyed sport as an opportunity to see myself get better at something you know i think sport is such a great way because you naturally develop you mature you you grow uh physically and um you know metaphorically as you get older and sport was just a nice outlet for me to to explore that growth it wasn't until i was in call it 10th grade that i started to say hey like i'm fast but i could be even faster and that was when I started formally training in the sport of athletics. I started to play a little bit less soccer. Soccer was my big sport before athletics. I would right. play, you know, six days a week, I'd be playing soccer. And um, that's my biggest advice to, to, to people who are, who are looking to get into sport is, is play as many different sports as you can for as long as you can. Because once you specialize and become a professional, it's tough. And I think you really need to understand why you're there and, and, and the path that, that got you there. And for me, being very clear about just wanting to be the best that I could be, that I was sport was something that I enjoyed. It wasn't something that I had to do uh, for money or for you know self fulfillment or anything like that. It was just something that I enjoyed, and then eventually led to the opportunity to to represent my country and and then you know specialize and become a little bit more focused after that. So I've been running professionally now for Australia for the last decade, and I know that because it was just over ten years ago that I made my Australian debut. It was at the world championships which were run in uh in south korea and daegu at the time and i remember showing up to the world championships with like 23 kilos of brand new australia kit over my right shoulder and 
a bag over my left shoulder that the coaches were, were looking at and was like, why has Steve brought two bags? And I had 23 kilos of textbooks. So it was three weeks before my HSC exams that I was competing in my first world championship. So for me, you know, sport has been a passion. It's been a profession as well for the last decade. But, you know, at the start, it was, it was, it was a very humble beginning of just doing something that I enjoyed. I love being outdoors. I love being active. I love being competitive. And yeah, you know, all this time later, I've now found myself at two Olympics, I think four world championships, two Commonwealth Games, and hopefully a couple more in me before my legs give way and I can hang my shoes up and, and move on to the next part of my life. Yeah, I'm resting on those laurels. Um, yeah, I, I think that's amazing, especially that philosophy that you talked about, how you recommend for anyone pursuing what they want, especially within sports, is that you want them to have that sort of general sense of, you know, do as much as you can before you go down a certain path. Um, and I, I, I totally agree. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that you had your HSC textbooks with you before your first world championship. And it just goes to show that the sort of sacrifices that you had to make to reach that level, but also still maintain that balance. And so I think one of the things that um, we touched on earlier is that, you know, you're a full-time enterprise manager at Uber, um, but you still um, sort of manage this part-time sort of running um, performance coach and you're teaching others. Um, how do you maintain that sense of balance? Is it like, you know, you're doing both or is it that, was there a certain point in time where you're like, okay, I have to sort of, you know, give up my running and focus on Uber or, you know, just like, uh, like just fully commit to running and forget about everything. Yeah, totally. It's a great question. You know, the balance is probably the hardest thing to do. It's the most, uh, it's a, probably the most common question that I ever get asked. And the truth is from the outside, it looks like I've got it in a very good spot. And the reality is I've been doing it for, you know, 15 years. I've been balancing uh, different things. So it takes a long time to get into a good position. And ultimately, I've been at both ends of the spectrum, right? I've been way too busy that I couldn't keep up. And I think something that my parents showed in me from a young age is if you're going to do something, you have to commit to it 100%. Uh, so, you know, to, to steal a, a quote that my high school uh, PE teacher said, like, if you're going to climb a mountain, you don't do it to get halfway. And so the idea behind that was for me, you know, I was like a puppy dog as a kid. You know, anything that looked exciting, I would want to do. Uh, but as I've started to mature and get older, I had to realize that the things that I gave my time and attention to could only be that that I was able to devote 100% of myself to. And from exploring a lot of different things, I got a, you know, a compass of what, what it was that I wanted to, to do, what, what it was that I enjoyed and what it was that I was good at. And I think the goal of anyone looking to develop and and you do it less so intentionally you do it unintentionally as a kid by staying curious and just following what is interest you have to be a puppy dog as a kid but as you get older you have to grow up and you have to realize that there are the best thing for you to do in terms of balancing everything is combine what you enjoy and what you're good at because once you've combined what you enjoy and what you're good at then you're able to find yourself in an environment where you have autonomy you have belief in yourself the courage to work a busy schedule so for me that is understanding that I'm spinning a lot of plates and sometimes I've got to you know, devote more energy to one side of my life, be it work or athletics, um, than that needs to be. But I also have to find this happy equilibrium, this middle point that I live on every single day because there are always parts of my life where, where I 
I, I physically attend a training camp, for example, like three weeks out from an Olympic Games, you attend a training camp. You put your entire life on hold because for those three, four weeks leading into Olympic Games, there is nothing more important in your life than preparing for that environment. Now, on training camps, you know, you don't see your friends, you don't see your family, you stay off social media, you don't watch Netflix, whatever it is, you 100% dialed in on your performance. You can't live like that. No, no one wants to live like that 365 days a year for 10 years. No way. So being very intentional with your time is a skill that you get to develop when you become a professional at anything. And it's just something that I've had 15 years of doing, you know, whether it's, you know, taking an exam on the flight from San Francisco to New York because we've got a competition and that's when my exam's going to have to be. You know, taking it on that five-hour flight, you do that. Um, you know, you you learn from your mistakes. You win, you celebrate, you lose, you learn. I've lost a lot of times in my life, be it on the track, off the track, and just using that as an experience to, to learn from and, and get better at. And I'm not perfect, but I've got a good balance of, you know, how long it's going to take me to do something. And I also think there's a a magic that's created when you construct, put a constraint on something. So, you know, if you give me a whole day to post a letter, like I'm going to take the whole day. But if you give me 20 minutes to figure out how I'm going to solve all these tasks, like I work really efficiently towards that. So I think there's value in, in actually con constraining your time and athletics and wanting to build a professional career on the athletics track, but also a professional career in the office gives me the opportunity to, to stress test that idea and it just by by nature of anything in life if you do it long enough you're going to get better at it so yeah no that's I think you touched on some wonderful points there I think one of the first things that definitely comes to mind or that stands out in my mind at least is the fact that you mentioned that um you know when you're leading a professional life um it's like you're trying to establish that equilibrium but it's never a hard 50 50 like across those 365 days you're not 50% at work, 50% running, you know, it's like you said, like those days where you're committing to the Olympics, it's completely that. And there are that I'm assuming days at Uber where, you know, you're overclocking and you need to be focusing on that. And then, so there might be some drawbacks, you know, towards running and some of the other things there. And so it's, it's sort of like a, a fluctuation in, or like a roller coaster along that, but baseline or like overall across that year you're trying to look at that 50 percent across the whole um which I, like i totally agree with um and the second thing that you touched on is that across those 10 years um you know um nobody would argue that they're perfect and i think by no means you yourself would say the same and in fact that those failures have you know sort of been a learning curve for you and i think an extremely important one um so like Along that line, um, when you experienced those failures, um, was it something that just stuck with you and it was really hard to overcome at first? Or, you know, were you able to use that as motivation to better yourself? How were you sort of able to overcome those, like, sort of past failures that you did experience? Definitely. I mean, to, to think about it, like, from, a, from a, a lens that everyone can understand, like, when you're a kid and something doesn't go how you want it to go, you go, oh, like, I wonder why that, that didn't happen. You know, well, I wonder why I hurt myself when I banged my head against the wall. And you do it again, you go, it's hurt again, I probably shouldn't do that. So we, as you get older, just adultize the word failure as just something that veered from how we were expected the outcome to be. And that's what we term as failure. But really it's just anytime there's a collision between what we hoped for and what actually happened, it's just an opportunity to learn from that. You know, I think failure has become a little bit of a buzzword these days, and I don't think people 
truly understand it because to me, it's, it's, it's like exercise and working out. You know, it's, there's a difference between exercising and working out. When you exercise, you're just physically moving. Your body's in movement. You might show up to a class. You might go for a run. But that's, that, that's exercise. The difference between exercise and working out is when you work out, you go into the exercise with a clear intention of what you're wanting to get out of it, a clear plan for how you're going to get that thing out of it, and then you do an assessment for how that thing is going to, how that exercise, that, that routine is going to build into your uh, future performance, you know, your holistic plan. So that's the difference between exercising. We could both go out a walk right now, and, that, and that's, that's exercise. In hell, we could go for a run together right now, and that's exercising. It's not a workout. Even if we're throwing up at the end of it, it's not a workout because the workout is when you go into the activity with a clear intention of what you're going to be doing, what you're going to get out of the activity, and then how that activity is going to fit into a larger plan. It's the same thing with failure. You can only truly fail at something if you set yourself up to succeed. And what I mean by that is you can't call it failure if you simply go about a task without properly thinking about what is it that I'm trying to achieve here? How, uh, what, what are the things that can go wrong and how does this fit into my larger plan? It's the same thing as if we were to just go out for a run right now. We could be doing a lot of work, but we're not failing if we haven't laid out the foundation for what we're trying to achieve, the objective we're trying to get out of it. So for me, I've always been able to overcome quote unquote failure by being very strong and committed to what it is that I'm going about my business and how it is that I'm going about that. So the, big, the biggest failure that I've had is I missed out on the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. And I missed out on those games by four one-hundredths of one second. Um, so, you know, you take one second of time, you divide that a hundred times, and I missed out on the Olympics by four of those slices. It's like an amount of time that no one can comprehend. And I had to look back at myself and say, what went wrong? And I was able to do that post-mortem analysis and I was able to come out with the ideas that did go wrong because I was able to make changes towards those and I haven't missed an Australian team. I've never missed a team since that failure. And the point that I'm trying to make there is you can, only if you set yourself up with intentional intentionality. And for me, all I'm trying to do is minimize regret. And there, you know, regret, regret is either doing something that you knew you shouldn't have done or not doing something that you knew you should have done. That's by nature, that's definition of regret. You eliminate regret when you make decisions that are that with the information available to you at that point in time. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We can all look back and you should look back and want to do things differently. But you can only commit to that if you go into the intention of the activity in the first place with the idea that this is the absolute best I can do with the information available to me. In the future, there's going to be more information available to me. And that if that tells me to recalibrate my compass, then I need to do that. So for me, that's how I overcome failure. It's, it's, it's not so much... Um, you know, looking back and finding it hard at the time. For me, I'm very clear about what I want to do. I'm very clear with how um, I'm going to go about it. I'm very open to the fact that what I know today might not be true tomorrow and that if better information comes about, I need to accept it. I need to take it on board. And when things don't go right, like they did in Rio, I need to see that as an opportunity to learn because when we win, we celebrate. When I win a race, I don't care about how I got there, really. You know, my objective was filled. I move on. But it's the pain of losing and being exposed to the pain of failing. That's the signal in the brain to say, I don't want to experience this again. And the only way of not experiencing that again is trying to learn from it and get better from it. So that's been my like evolution through the word failing is 
you know, I think as a, as a young kid, if you're like, you know, nine years old to 16 years old, just try a whole bunch of stuff. You know, if it doesn't go right, whatever. Just keep trying and finding things that you enjoy, that you're curious about and what you're good at. And then eventually when you get into a point of maturity where you're like, okay, I found what I'm good at and what I enjoy. Now I want to get to the best in the world at that. That's where we change from exercising to working out. We start going into uh, these goals and these next steps with a focus, a clear plan. And when things don't go right there, the only way that you're going to keep wind at your back is if you look and say, okay, that didn't work. How can I get better? It's like trying to solve a maze. You have to run into a lot of dead ends to solve the maze. And it's the same with getting to to the top in any profession. You're going to run into dead ends. That's okay. Backtrack and find a new path. There's always a new path. Yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, like a wonderful philosophy. I've never even actually considered failure like that because I think for me and I think for many other people, they usually just see failure like through the lens of just it's a it's a hindsight sort of thing it's like oh i failed like what are the steps that i can take but the fact that you put so much emphasis on the initiatives and the foresight that you take into it and that you can't even call it failure unless you've taken the steps to do so to do your best with what you have available and that you know you're confident that okay this is like the best that i could have done and then then you and if you're still not satisfied satisfied with the result you then you can see it as failure you you Um, build from that it's like um yeah you 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 know the point of failure is only dangerous when you when you when it when it becomes inhibitive when you stop and the only way that you can avoid that is by just treating it as, a, oh, I've, I've hit a wall in a maze and I've got to backtrack. I'm still curious enough to find my way out of the maze. That's, that's, that's kind of how you get through the bouts of, of failure. It's, it's not to say it's not easy. Um, I think the other thing to, to realise is, you know, even a couple of months ago, I was walking from the warm-up track in the Tokyo to the competition track, you know, where I warm up before the Olympics and the stadium that I compete in. And my brain's like sending me all these messages. It's like, Steve, you're going to lose. Like, Steve, it's 40 degrees. You might die. Like, it's so hot. Um, And the point behind that is our brains have been designed to survive. We haven't been designed to live. And the distinction I make there is our brains evolutionarily have been designed to avoid pain. And failure is a pain, right? When you don't achieve something you set out to achieve, that's that's painful. So what the brain does is the brain says, I don't want to get to a place of pain. So I'm going to try and kind of sabotage you from starting because if you don't start, then you don't fail. But the truth is, if you don't start, you also don't live. You know, we can't like just exist in a bubble. That's not fun. Um, so the way that you're able to shut out that mechanism in the brain is by saying, thank you, brain. Thank you for helping me understand something that's important to me. Because if it wasn't important to me, then I wouldn't fear the failure in it. Um, you know, if, if if it's not important to you, you know, you don't care. And if you don't care, well, you can't feel pain. So the only way to truly fail is to, 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 to not want to get better at the things that you care about. And that's when the brain is going to let you know that you care about it because it's going to make you nervous. You're going to get butterflies in your stomach. It's going to try and kind of sabotage you away from starting the activity because by nature that's something you care about and if you care about it then there's a chance of pain if there's a chance of pain the body doesn't want to deal with it so you get better and you develop a stronger muscle by exposing yourself to things that are uncomfortable that there's the opportunity to feel pain hopefully not too much pain um, physically or psychologically but then you also have the appetite to keep going you know that's that's the exciting and beautiful part of life is 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 going through that we don't want to just exist uh, the only way to get through life with 
the thrills and the highest of highs and unfortunately to know how high you've been you've got to know how low you can go as well so that's kind of my thoughts around the idea of preparing yourself for something you know make sure you commit to what you enjoy what you're good at and have the curiosity in the long-term perspective to keep going through that maze it took me nine years to run a personal best time to give you some context nine years ago the iphone 4 came out Nine years ago, Instagram was worth $1 billion, sold to Facebook for $1 billion. Today, you can buy the iPhone 13. Instagram's worth $130 billion. I had not run one hundredth of one second faster in that period of time. I was stuck in the maze. But I was curious. I knew what I was good at. I knew what I cared about. And I persevered through the maze and bang, found myself at a new personal best time over in Tokyo a couple of months ago. I just started yelling. I don't know why. I started yelling. My parents were crying. I had people messaging me on social media being like, that was amazing. Because as humans, we can all empathize with people who are doing difficult things. I think that's why when you ask someone, you know, what year are you in at school? And they say year 12, like immediately we think, oh, like, like, I respect you. I respect you because I know what you're going through is tough. Like this is the year that counts. This is the year that you're judged on. This is the year that opportunities are frauded to you. It's human nature to be connected between two things and pain or the something that's difficult, like running the Olympics is difficult, achieving well in school is difficult. That difficulty is something that we as humans can connect with. And it's like something that bonds us as, as humans and between humans. So whether you speak English or Spanish or French, you see someone running at the Olympic Games, you immediately have admiration for them, not because you know anything about them except for one thing, and that's that leaning into something that's difficult. Um, you don't know the story behind them, but you could... You, you just have this amazing connection with the person on the TV because you know that what they're going through is hard to do. And it's the same connection that I have with anyone, you know, whether it's a year 12 student, whether I see someone taking up an instrument for the first time, I know that they're going to stumble. And to me, there's beauty in that. And that's why I think it's so important that people go out and be curious and, and not let that voice in your head sabotage you from starting. It's always going to be there. I love, you know, you listen to a commentator in sport. They say... You know, Novak Djokovic or, um, you know, Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal, they're, they're in the you know, final of Wimbledon or the Australian Open and, and they talk about the experience. What the sports commentators don't remember, because uh, often they're previous athletes, but it's not the experience that gets them through that situation. It's the fact that they have the ability to silence the voice that's with them every single time they're stepping onto a major court, which is... I'm vulnerable here. I'm exposed. And your brain's trying to move you away from that dial, but they show up day in, day out, pushing themselves. And that's why we as humans just applaud them. We, they're strangers to us, but we can appreciate in our own battles that we fight every day that there's difficulty in doing things that are great. So when we see people going about the things that are making them great, we just have massive respect for it. And I think that's something that I certainly found when I was studying in America. It's an amazing air of optimism in America where if they see you trying to get better for yourself, people just want to blow wind at your back. They want to help you. It's just like a beautiful part of the culture over there. And I think in Australia, we can get stuck in this tall poppy syndrome, which is basically where we don't want people getting ahead of the herd and we kind of draw them back. Um, and it's no surprise to me that the largest companies in the world are based in America because they are the companies that are hearing these voices in their head and, 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 and getting around each other and, and, and spurring them on. Yeah, that's uh, that was an amazing way to connect sort of everything, I think, within the world, how you sort of went across cross-culturally. You said that, you know, like pain and 
you know, the openness of experience and the news, something that connects all of us and that um, sensation to pain is definitely something that's interesting. I think you said, obviously, don't push yourself into something where, you know, it's something that's traumatic. But um, one common note that I've noticed from uh, many figures that are inspirational, or motivational, or, you know, have been extremely successful in their field um, has been a fear of complacency. Um, it's complacency that, you know, often scares them because they they want to be you know uncomfortable and push be pushed into the new and it's definitely something that you've harped on within uh that amazing sort of um monologue that you had which was um yeah um inspiring me as well um and so um but this sort of uh idea or notion that you have about you know not um, fearing things and how you overcome failure is it is it something that you've experienced yourself or that you've learned through your past failures and experiences um just yourself or is it something that you've learned maybe from podcasts or um you know other authority figures like coaches teachers it, it, or or was it like an accumulation of that like where did you sort of like sort of build up this idea on your own sort of personal philosophy for dealing with it it's just living. It's just like life. I think, um, you know, especially if it depends what how, how old you are. You know, I really think that you, as a, as a kid, and I define a kid, you know, if, if you're less than 16 years old, you're a kid. If you, I mean, and then you ask my parents and they'll probably say, if you're less than 30 years old, you're still a kid. So people have different definitions. But, you know, for, for me, like you have to go about and try a lot of different things, figure it out what you enjoy, what you're good at, combine those two things and, and try and make a career out of it. I think that everyone, this is one of my fundamental beliefs, should have what I call an Olympic-like goal. And what that is, is just as it sounds. It's something where you aspire to get to the top of the world in something. Because as soon as you set that goal for yourself, you develop what I define as like a high-performance mentality towards something. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an extraordinary person. I'm not a freak. I'm like a very normal person. Um, but I've been able to achieve great things because of this goal that I've tethered myself towards, which is trying to be the best in the world. Because ultimately, what you realize when you set yourself a goal like that is you have to be at your best. You know, if you look at um, startups as an example of businesses, nine out of 10 businesses fail. So if you're going to be the one that survives, you've got to be pretty good. And the only way that you can be pretty good is if you're the best version of yourself. And the, to, to me, I found the only way that I become the best version of myself is when I set myself a goal so high, so big, that it, it, it gets me through the downs and it, it inspires me towards the highs of what I can achieve. You know, Just because you're aspiring to a big goal doesn't give you any uh, chance of getting there. You know, When I'm on my bike workout and I'm on a 45-minute threshold, and I'm sitting on the bike and after 20 minutes, I just want to get off. I'm exhausted. Like my head, I've got a headache. You know, I've already gone through a whole bottle of water and I'm looking at the, the, the computer on the bike and it's telling me I've got 20 minutes to go. If you didn't have a goal like getting to the Olympics, you step off the bike. It's getting too hard. It's getting too much for you because your brain's starting to send you these messages at this point saying, Steve, you've had a good workout. Get off. Steve, you had a really good training session the day before. Let's not go overboard. Let's get off. But if you've got the goal of trying to become the best in the world, you silence that voice. You say, no, that's the only thing I'm not going to do is get off the bike. So you start having to innovate within yourself. You say, okay, Steve, I'm just going to get to the minute. And then uh, I promise you when I get to one minute more, then I'm going to get off. And then you get to that minute and you say, bugger, I'm not getting off now. 
And then you start, you know, saying, well, what else can I do? I'm like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this song. As soon as the chorus goes, I'm getting off. And then you, chorus finishes, I'm not getting off. And you have to play with yourself. It's the only way you can get through it. And then all of a sudden you, you're through the 45-minute workout was before you were getting off at 20 minutes. And that compounds over time. If you don't know what compounding is, look it up, Google it. If you could only remember one thing from our time today, it's understand the power of compounding because growth isn't linear. And if you give something a lot of time and you allow it to compound and you don't stop that compounding unnecessarily, that's how you get great. And for me, it's all about understanding that, all about understanding that if I'm just in it for the long term, if I can continue to find myself and energize myself, and if I have an Olympic-like goal, which means I'm not just looking at the bike workout, I'm actually looking at, well, what am I eating following that bike workout? How am I recovering after that bike workout? Um, you know, what are the parts of my day? All of a sudden, I've got to plan that bike workout with a big presentation to a group of you know, C-suite executives. How am I going to fit that in? Where do I get my energy from? What's, what's drawing energy, energy away from me? Am I introverted? Am I extroverted? You know, when do I need a break? When am I burnt out? You can only ask and answer those questions when you have this Olympic-like goal, when you're aspiring to be the very best that you can be at something. That's why whenever I like to talk to someone, I just ask them, you know, what are you passionate about? What is a topic that we can talk about where I can see a sparkle in your eye? It, does, it could be Pokemon cards. It could be trying to run for the Olympics. It could be trying to start a business. It could be trying to make as much money in investing as you can. It could be trying to just become the first person in my family to go through uh, university. Whatever it is that you're passionate about, I want to see the sparkle in your eye because I know that if I can attach a goal to that, if it can be big enough, then then the rest of your life is just going to be, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. If you're great at one thing, you're great at a lot of different things. So be intentional about finding something that you're willing to walk through the maze of nine years without improving, but still doing it with the curiosity and the passion and the focus and the discipline that combining what you enjoy and what you're good at entails. And you might find yourself in Australian uniform. You might find yourself owning a business. You might find yourself, uh, you know, becoming a professor or a teacher or whatever it is that you've decided to devote your energy to. That's what it's all about. You know, it, it, it's difficult and it's hard. But for me, you know, our, 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 this is too philosophical for your audience, but we don't know how long we have on this earth. Like we don't know how long that we have. And for me, I, I just want to make sure that the energy that I'm given to the world is something that I enjoy, I'm passionate about. And that's something that if I can show through my example and have others relate to that example, because they can see that I'm doing it tough, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring to big things, I'm doing things that are difficult. If that can just give them a little bit more energy, a little wind at their back to silence that voice in their head that's telling them to stop, get off the bike at 20 minutes, you know, that's that's this greater thing that I can leave on this world. I'm not the smartest guy you ever meet. I'm not the tallest guy you ever meet. I'm not the best looking guy you ever meet. I'm not the nicest guy you ever meet. But what I am trying to do is, is just be an example to the voice that I know everybody has, which is I can be better. I want to be better. And that's the environment that I just know is going to, you know, talk about Moore's law, getting better and technology, computing power, doubling every two years. Man, that's nothing compared to the human potential that we can have, everyone has within us. It's just about creating the environment. I've been very lucky. I've born to a loving family who's given me a lot of support. I've had great mentors, great people in my life along the way to help me through the journey, to get me through the tough periods of time and uh, and ultimately to be there and, and celebrate the good times with me as well because that's really important. There's no wealth. There's no point doing it all by yourself. You want to bring people along with you. You want to celebrate and you want to you know just make the most of the, the time that we have on, on the earth. Yeah, I, I, 
I think that's that's an amazing thing. I think also the recognition that you know, it, it, like there was a, a like a loving system and a foundation for you to be able to like to achieve and pursue what you wanted. Um, and it is an important recognition, but like you said, at the end of the day, it was up to you to battle that voice inside of your head. And one way to do that was um, the small changes over time sort of compounding. And it, I think that that compounding feature is something that is really hard for people to realize because they're always... Uh, thinking of the little things. Well, I think on the, on that point, something that makes it easier is compounding is an incredibly tough concept to understand. Exponential growth is an comple- incredibly tough concept to understand. You just need to understand this. When you were five years old, how far could you kick a soccer ball? When you were 10 years old, how far could you kick a soccer ball? When you were 15 years old, how far could you kick it? You can kick it further every time, You know, part of getting stronger, getting a better kick, all the technique. So that compounding happens naturally as you get better and, and develop at something. That's why for me, when I talk about compounding, I talk about finding something that you enjoy, that you're passionate about and finding something that you're good at. Because the only way compounding works is if, if it's over time and it's a long period of time and, it's, and it starts small. You know, you, you start small, but if, if you can persevere with something over time, if you can read, you know, it's, it's, you've got to look at the example of compounding. I'm going to stuff it up here, but if you invest one cent today and two cents the next day and three cents the next day and four cents the next day and you build that up over a career, you become like the richest man in the history by like a zillion dollars. And the idea behind that is just, it's the same idea, the principle of compounding. Do something every single day that helps you get better towards something and don't worry about the small incremental changes. Just exist. Just keep doing what you enjoy. Keep doing what you're good at. And just let time sort itself out. And that's the, that's the power of compounding. All right. So we've touched on your sort of internal sense of motivation, but your background as a performance coach lends to an interesting perspective. Um, how do you tackle when someone else is really lacking motivation? You know, like they're tired and they're not wanting to do something. How do you tackle their uh, lack of wanting to do something? Yeah, it's tough. You know, you... you the first thing you have to do is you have to build a relationship with the person. You have to really understand them and get them to appreciate that, that you understand them. Uh, you know, we're humans. We want to connect with, with other humans. And the first thing is realizing that, you know, there are times where we all go through bouts of un, unmotivation um, when we're unmotivated. So for me, it's, 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 it's understanding, building that connection. And once I'm on that connection, then it started working out. It's like, what's important to you? You know, what, what, what are the things that you value? Um, when you're at your best, tell me about your life. You know, you know, where are you living? Who are you hanging out with? Uh, what are you enjo- doing to enjoy yourself? Are you laughing? Are you smiling? What, what are all those things? And then it's starting to piece together. How do we get back there? Um, because we've been there before. We, we, we know what that's like. And, and I always find that, that, that people sometimes just need a little bit of a, a push. It's kind of like the idea of eating McDonald's for the rest of your life to a, to, to a, to a kid sounds amazing. Like they couldn't think that's the greatest thing ever if we could eat McDonald's for the rest of life. And then you go to an, somebody else and, and, and you introduce them to a healthy diet. You tell them what the flavor of food tastes like. You tell them what it's like to not have uh, energy crashes like you do when you have super sugary foods. And they say to you, I never want to break away from my diet. I never want to eat badly. And it's the same thing with motivation. It's like getting people to understand that those short-term fixes uh, aren't what we're looking for. We need to go deeper. We need to fundamentally get to what makes them happy. What do they enjoy? Who, who do they enjoy spending time with? And then building exercise in from there, you know, 
exercise is just you know we're hu- we are human we 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 were built to exercise we were built to move you know there's a reason we get a massive endorphin kick in our brains when we exercise because it feels good it's good for the body and the body wants to reward things that are good for itself in the same way that we move away from pain because it is a potential threat and danger to us we move towards things that are good for us and exercise is one of them so i've just found exercise to be a great outlet for people whatever battle that they're having we all have our battles but exercise just gives us a sense of routine it taps into the fundamental part of being human and it allows ourselves to have the outlet that then can go and fuel the rest of our lives so it's not without challenge but it it, it must start with creating an authentic relationship between two people figuring out what it is they enjoy creating that environment around them and then just giving them the belief to to go for it and to to help silence the doubt that we all have yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, yeah, I'm, it's about unlocking your potential like through that biological effect of, you know, like going through the exercise and um, it just has an amazing effect. It's not only for fitness or your sense of health, while those are, you know, great things that it does help with, um, you know, the whole mind-body theory of how exercise can really affect, you know, your dopamine levels and your level of energy and everything around that. So, yeah, I think the takeaway from that is, um, you know, if you are going through some things that exercise, even just a little bit, um, can help with that um so yeah um that'll sort of uh conclude us on sort of the more in-depth questions um and there is a little thing that we want to sort of do with you steve which is a lightning round which is essentially these questions are meant to be answered uh in one word or one sentence maximum and basically just the first answer that comes to your mind okay yeah you ready i'm ready all right cool Number one, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Don't climb a mountain to get halfway. Cool. Second, what is the worst advice you have ever received? Gosh, I usually don't pay attention to bad advice, so I don't remember it. Okay, cool. Um, Three, what's one thing you're trying to learn or develop right now? Right now, I am trying to develop how to tap into a market cool all right and then four what's one thing you think other people value that you don't personally value i'll say netflix (laughs) (laughs) awesome and last one if you had to enact one law that every other human being on earth had to follow what would it be set an olympic like goal awesome yeah and so that about unfortunately concludes our first episode of season two it has been an absolute pleasure having this chat with you steve um and i hope the people listening at home found it just as informative as i did um i'll be sure to exercise on my way back home um we'll make sure to leave your details in the description if other people hope to learn from more from you and watch out for future talks and events that you may be involved in um do you have any closing words for the people at home i just want to say Give yourself permission to be successful. You know, whatever it is, tell yourself that you can do it and give yourself permission to do it and enjoy the ride. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. So uh, I'm Edward. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. And once again, thank you, Steve, for joining us as the first guest of of season two of the Entrepreneurial Mindset. And so, yeah, that's the end of the first episode. See you, everyone.